This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. I'm Trevor Barrett, and I'm here, as always, with David Blakesley. David, hello. Hey, Trevor. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, too. For the first time in our podcasting career, (laughs) David and I can see each other. (laughs) It's kind of of nice, but... um, I don't know if that'll change too much of our, our relationship. We've been doing this for, for so long that I, I, I certainly hope not, unless it's to improve it. But uh. Yeah, throw a, new, <laughs> throw a new wrinkle in there. We are not doing a video podcast or a vlog mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just uh, we've got the video going in background while we record the audio. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, we are here today to talk about a great box set that um, I don't see too many people pick up these days in flash shell halls or Criterion flash shell halls, things like that. Um, the This is the David Lean Direct Noel, uh, Noel Coward uh, box set. David, if you can believe it, this set came out nine years ago. I know. Yeah. I looked at the dates and it's like... <laughs> That still feels not like a recent release, but it still feels kind of fresh and maybe, yeah. like you sort of said, underexplored, maybe even underappreciated. And I think we'll get into some of the reasons for that. But uh, yeah, it, yeah, the years do fly by, don't they? <laughs> they, they, they really do. Um, but this is this was one of my favorite sets when it came out. It's remained one that I hold in great esteem. Uh, I I love this the story that this set tells and. One thing, uh, let's start this way, David. Mm -hmm. So on Letterboxd, you can put at the top of your profile your four favorite movies. And people do different things. I know you tend to put one of your favorites, one that you're working on, you know, or or the seasons. Mm -hmm. You know, you you do a lot of fun, clever things with it. Um, But I've had on there pretty much since the beginning four films that I do consider my, my favorites, and I've never really changed them. You and I have had a chance already to talk about three of those, and today we're going to talk about the fourth one. That's a, that's a great um, a, a, a accomplishment for me, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I, I love talking film with you, and to, to now have the chance to talk about four of the ones that I selected for that um, will be great. But I, I, I'm not going to have you guess. I'm not going to try and quiz you as to which ones you think might be my, my favorites, Um but I, I thought I'd go through them and see if any if you think these ring true. If it surprises you, if you're like, "Oh, I I thought you kind of were down on that film." But mm. um, anyway, my my the first one I have on the list is Winter Light, Ingmar sure. Bergman's film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have Father Panchali, Satyajit yep. Rai. I have uh, Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Oh, sure, sure. And then I have David Lean's Brief Encounter, which we'll talk about later. So I, yeah, I well, am excited. <laughs> check that off the old bucket list. There, <laughs> we've covered them, right? Well, yeah, you know, we can we can stop podcasting now. I've I've accomplished my goal, my main goal all along. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just pause there a quick second to talk about this letterbox top four um you know you, you maybe you've seen on tiktok as well because i know you kind of work mm-hmm. around there that's been kind of a pretty big trend recently of people rating each other's letterbox top fours i have you seen any of that or not i haven't oh, I, I pretty okay. much log in and see if you've posted a new oh. video <laughs> oh, well, and then right. i log out because i tell you that that tiktok when i browse it boy i don't know what i'm gonna find in it <laughs> it is it is it can be startling for sure and and i guess i've learned to you know, maybe not master it, but I, I've used the not interested option just to kind of try to Ooh, tidy nice. up my feed a little bit. If you long hold and then 
she's not interested, then supposedly they send you less of that type of stuff. I've tried that before, <laughs> and I end up liking the the, the thing, <laughs> yeah. which I don't like doing that. But <laughs> well, it's one of those things where the algorithm knows us better than we know ourselves, right? And so it, it's paying attention to what we actually watch versus what we say we want to watch. So, <laughs> anyways, yeah, to digress a little bit, but yeah, this whole letterbox top four thing, and and you're right, I. I I go with what I'm looking forward to from the Criterion upcoming releases, what's coming up on my podcast. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is my number one film, so that's always got the number one slot there. But I, I do vary it up a little bit. But that is interesting that you'd, you'd mention that just because it does seem to be kind of a, a trending thing, uh, hmm. especially amongst the younger set. They kind of do uh, instant personality analyses as they look at <laughs> each other's top four and who's a striver and who's a poser and who's uh, pretentious and and who's cool and regular and, and got great taste and all of that. So, yeah, but it I, is, I, and, I, and I totally, you know, as far as your top four, I think those speak you know, to the Trevor that I know quite well. And I existentially, I, um, <laughs> a, adrift, uh, achingly lonely. Uh. Yeah. That, that poignant <laughs> longing for that little something that's out there that we can't quite identify what it is, but we're just, we're, we're looking for it. We're, we're striving no. to get it. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if I wanted a personality analysis based on like winter light and, and even, even brief encounter would be kind of a tough one. <laughs> well, we're going to have to get into it and talk about why those films. In fact, I think we have covered it. I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on brief encounter, but we've got a, a little ways to go before we get to that one. Yes, so. yes. E even though, um, interestingly enough, I think that may have been the very first. Um, well, let, let, let's let's talk here. So, yeah. we, we've got David Lean. Uh, most listeners will know who David Lean is, at least by reputation, if not by some of his you know, grand epics like Lawrence of Arabia, uh, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, um, Dr. Zhivago. Those are the big ones. And those are films that I saw as a kid living in a house where nobody watched films. You know, I mean, I, my, my parents would put on some of the big ones. And, um, and so I watched all of those as a little kid. I never really knew who David Lean was, but I knew the films. Um, and I think David Lean's a superb director. We'll get into that. But this is the beginning of his career. Uh, his first four films are in this box set, and they happen to be four films that he uh, made kind of in conjunction, but also as adaptations of the playwright Noel, Noel Coward, who is a famous uh, British playwright, one of the most famous British playwrights of all time, um, and a, a leading light in... You know, uh, uh, just kind of that star. He, he had a personality, and these films are, are ones that they they worked on together to some extent, and certainly the first one to you know very close together. And this is how he David Lean launched his career. Um, but when we look at the 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 way these things were actually written, Noel Coward wrote Brief Encounter as a as a one act play called Still Life back in 1936. And it's the last one we'll talk about today. Um, he wrote Blythe Spirit in 1939, and it's the second to last one we'll talk about today. And This Happy Breed in 1941. And then the, the very uh, last play, or the, well, the last thing he wrote that's included in the set would be In Which We Serve, 1942, 
which is the first film in this set. And it was written directly for the screen. It wasn't a play to begin with. So we're kind of looking at David Lean in progression and Noel Coward in reverse chronological mm, order. Interesting. Uh, yeah. But it's it, it should be a, a, a very fun discussion. I definitely think we'll we'll end on a high note. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. One of one of my top favorite films of all time. Uh, but there is so much in this in this box set. Um, how do you want to start, David? I mean, do you want to talk to me about David Lean? Do you want to talk to me about Noel Coward? Your experiences with uh, one or the other? Well, I think we there, did a, there, yeah. there are so many personalities in this set. Oh, absolutely. I, um, right. The, right. It, hard to know exactly a good way to start. So why don't we just jump in and you tell me which one you want to talk about first? <laughs> sure. Well, let's go back to the original uh, teaser that the Criterion Collection threw out there, a bunch of skinny cows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of those wacky drawings that Jason Poland did. And uh, it was a bunch of... Uh, skinny cattle uh kind of gathered in a group and the the pun was lean cow herd so you know lean coward and uh, that was kind of a known combination a uh, brief encounter had already been released by criterion as a standalone dvd uh back in the relatively since early the years beginning. i think it was like what 2000 2001 it was kind of in yeah. that early run you know they'd already switched over to the new logo but it was you know definitely a recognized classic uh, that you know, Janus Films had released, and and you know to great acclaim, it's really one of the outstanding films of that era. Uh, but what they did is they put together a themed box set, bringing together the the names and and the collaborative work of these two really kind of large reputations, big time characters, masters of of British uh, culture, you could say. Uh, Noel Coward was definitely one of those, you know sort of the the five-star athlete of the theater, if you will. He could sing, he could dance, he'd write stories, you know, uh, screenplays. He was a, a, a real bon vivant, you know. He, he'd always be the center of attention, you know, both uh, spontaneous off-the-cuff stories and tales that he would regale the audiences with, as well as just uh, this kind of epitome of, of upper upper middle class sophistication he he hobnobbed with royalty and aristocrats even though he came from a very you know humble background but he was just driven from a young age to to be a creative expressive force and uh it was it was very uh very driven very ambitious but also had a nonchalance about him that just made it all seem very natural and fun and playful uh great wit and i think uh design for living was a, mm-hmm. another story that he had had been adapted by Ernest, Ernst Lubitsch. And so, you know, there's a lot of Noel wait, Coward. Wait, Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, another Criterion release that mm-hmm. I think more people should uh, jump on. Oh, absolutely. Designed for living. Very, very witty, very, you know, risque. And, and, uh, and really, you know, <laughs> pretty, pretty surprising when you see a film uh, of that age. And it's like, whoa, those are some pretty forward ideas, you know, um, <laughs> as well as very entertaining and, and great performances. Uh, you know, all of that. So, you know, there's a lot of talent involved here. And and then there's David Lean. You're right. The big bombastic, uh, you know, gargantuan productions of the, of the late fifties and the sixties, um, you know, winner of two, you know, best picture Oscars and, you know, just 
such a huge footprint that David Lean left on cinema. You know, one of the things he talked about right at the beginning was how this this doesn't seem to be featured in a lot of hall picks or people are not really chatting it up. And I, I guess I just have to think about, you know, these are exceptionally British, British films, you know, and, <laughs> yes. and, and we're in an era where, you know, there's an interest in other voices and the diversity of, of um, you know, creative talents mm-hmm. and expressions. These films to some people may feel a little bit stodgy, a little bit old fashioned, uh, a little bit conservative. Yeah. Yeah. They're, know, despite they're... the personalities that made them. Right. Uh, you know, Noel Coward was not really a conservative individual. I don't think, no. or at least wouldn't be by our standards, but the films themselves can feel rather, uh, conservative values enforcing them. And I can mm-hmm. see that that wouldn't quite appeal to a lot of people. Yeah, they're, yeah they're, they don't feel real hip, but I think there's a lot of depth to them. And I think they're not mm-hmm. necessary or they're not at all, you know, kind of endorsements of the status quo and, you know, stiff upper lip. Perhaps the first one has a little bit of that because it is a wartime morale builder. Uh, and even this happy breed really focuses on, you know, middle class propriety. And, and it's a bit of a mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a saga, a soap opera even, but it's it's not milked to that extent uh, and then you know brief encounter certainly does you know talk about the the repression and the self-control mm-hmm. and the discipline of being a respectable middle class uh, person and so you know all all of those uh, kind of traditional values are there but there's a lot of tension there's a lot of turmoil underneath the surface as people sort of strive to keep it together and you know, feel the real feelings that, uh, you know, propriety might otherwise have them inhibit. So there, there's a lot of um, poignancy in these films, and there's a lot of brilliant craftsmanship. And then David Lean, as as the director of these larger-than-life spectacles, we see his roots uh, telling stories that are much more down-to-earth, smaller in scale, uh, but already showing, you know, the seeds of, of the greatness of his technique, uh, as as a director and have his creative use of cinema, taking these you know productions intended for stage originally, and then uh, cinemifying them, if I can coin a new word, <laughs> making them into like something it. that's visual, that's that incorporates the use of music and and editing, and we'll certainly talk about Lean as the editor um, because that that was basically his platform. That's how he got you know, himself into the director's chair eventually uh, over the course of a decade or longer, um, learning how to put movies together, uh, without a whole lot of formal education to do that. He just kind of caught the interest and, and made a go of it and turned out to be spectacularly successful. So, yeah, so lean and coward really are kind of like icons of, of 20th century British, uh, culture and, and, um, the arts, uh, the creative expressions and all of that. And so this, these are the four films they made together. Uh, by the time of Brief Encounter, they were kind of both ready to go their separate ways. But it really is quite uh, quite amazing to see, you know, how these two talents uh, collaborated, brought a lot of other very, you know, capable people along with them, and crafted four very distinctive stories that I think, you know, all have their strengths and, and make for a pretty compelling set, as well as the, you know, the surrounding context that really brings Lean and Coward as individuals to the forefront rather than just the work that they did. So it's another really 
top shelf uh, box set as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I love the story that it tells. Um, I'll, I'll admit, Brief Encounter, again, I, we've mentioned it, one of my favorite films of all time. The other three, I could do, you know, do without. And if I'd never, ever, ever seen them, I don't think I would feel like I'd missed out on great films. Mm-hmm. But the the people involved, the the post-war, well, the, the mid-war within which we serve, and then the post-war films... Uh, that they worked on after that, you know, we've got just some personalities here that are about to, to explode as far as our consciousness in film with Rex Harrison, for example, we get to see him young and, and dapper as always uh, John Mills uh, it makes a strong um, entrance uh, in the first couple of films, uh, Celia Johnson is such a strong presence in the, in this box set, even though this was in a way her main period of work. Um, you know, we've got just all these great bit players of like Joyce Carey in, in so many of them and, and their fun personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kay Walsh, who was David's yeah. David Lean's wife during this decade. She's, she's great in it. Um, as far as behind the camera, uh, we've got, uh, Ronald Neem, you know, and oh, I'm blanking on the other little darling. Um, it's Ronald Neem, David Lean, and oh, uh, Anthony Havelock Elvis. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, there, there's there's just a story of people who aren't just making films. I mean, they really are involved in in uh, a lot of what is going on in Britain at this time. I mean, they are involved with not with government directly, like politicians. But they are, you know, in which we serve was made in conjunction with the government. And I think a lot of these films kind of show that they're they're invested in in England and in helping people get through the war and making sure that they're doing their part. Even something like Blythe Spirit uh, was, you know, a successful stage play in, from 1939 until they made it into this movie in 45 because it provided an escape from the war uh, in, in, in many ways. It didn't bring it up, <laughs> you know, because right. it, it was just a just reminded a you of thing. what life was like before everything mm-hmm. fell to pieces. Yeah, definitely this enlistment for the war effort, uh, the, the sense that these, you know, obviously at this point, affluent, creative, comfortable, artistic uh, people uh, still had a part to play in pulling the society mm-hmm. together and contributing. I mean, that was very legitimately something Noel Coward wanted to do. In fact, he was told by Churchill to go just sing Mad Dogs and Englishmen and, you know, keep them happy. <laughs> and he said, no, I've got to do something more substantial than that. Yeah, he knows he can go out to the music hall and put on a performance and amuse those privileged enough to get in. But he really wanted to reach, you know, the masses, the working class, and not in some kind of, you know, self-gratifying, condescending way. I think he had a genuine dedication to the nation, mm-hmm. to, the, to, to the people, and to the cause of, of beating back this fascist Nazi threat that really was, you know, killing people and, and uh, it was a living nightmare. And, uh, you know, war is hard. War is arduous. War is exhausting. And, and it's very easy to get discouraged. And, uh, you know, even though he, you know, w- wasn't able to actually go out on the front lines and fight, uh, just like Laurence Olivier and others, they they had something positive to contribute. And I respect that. I, I definitely recognize that uh, it takes all hands and, and uh, 
in, in which we serve in particular, uh, I, I really feel is, is a very, you know, uh, it's a very uplifting, uh, inspiring film, even though it also incorporates some of those elements of uh, imperialism and colonialism and things that are not so much in fashion these days. But this was a statement of, of the British people and of the people who made this film to, to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the sacrifices that are necessary, the, the hard prices that are being paid by many, uh, and yet the, the need to persevere and see this thing through to the finish. Because you're right, when, when uh, In Which We Serve was, was created, nobody knew how the war was going to end. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, there was, a, there was a real threat, and they had to figure out how they were going to get through this. Well, and they've been... They've been going through the Blitz right yeah. in London for mm-hmm. for a long time. That plays a part in in which we serve, a uh, particularly devastating part. And this is their 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 life during this time. I mean, we here in the United States, we had our own morale boosters and people, you know, stars Absolutely. and celebrities going around the country and and entertaining and making movies and also going to entertain the troops in various places. Uh, that's kind of what these these people are doing here. And you, you mentioned Lawrence Olivier. He, he plays a, a very, very slight un, uncredited role in, in uh, the, the, as, a, as a narrator, a very brief narrator in this happy breed. So he's even involved in these films a yeah, little bit. Right. right, <laughs> Definitely. So, well, why don't we look at in which we serve I, this, this was the very first time Noel Coward had been, involved in making a film some of his some of his work had been adapted for the screen but here he is um, involved in it and he apparently never really wanted a a part in movies Uh, he liked the stage he believed in the stage he you know didn't actually I think appreciate many of the films that had been made of his work and uh, he didn't necessarily want to do anything with this but it was his desire to do something like you said a few minutes ago uh, for the war effort that really pulled him in. And uh, importantly, this film is stated in, in you know, the opening credits as co-directed uh, by David Lean. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a coward uh, direction. He was very involved in the directing. Um, he was uh, a producer. He was, you know, uh, very much the man in charge, but David Lean steps in to help him because uh, Coward had never done a, a film and Lean had never directed a film, but he'd been involved as an editor for many years over many, many films. He had done some sort of assistant directing. Um, you know, he'd been a part of actually, you know, we talked about the George Bernard Shaw eclipse set several <laughs> years ago, and he was involved with uh, Major Barbara. So he had he had run you know, this situation a little bit, but only as an assistant editor or assistant or assistant to the director, I think was his formal title. So not even an assistant director, but kind of a guy who was given some certain tasks, but, you know, he turned out to be pretty good at it. And I think he had those ambitions. He had wanted to take that next step. And maybe we can just talk a little bit about Lean's experience as an editor. He, he edited sure. like newsreels. He, he put, he had to put things together on very short order and became very fluent as well as, um, you know, showed a lot of talent for putting, you know, with, with a newsreel, you've got to take a bunch of stock footage or your know, raw footage and weave it into some kind of a compelling narrative within just a couple minutes, you know, because you're jumping from subject to subject and, uh, and, and know how to communicate your underlying point or your central message through, you know, 
the, the blend of images, narration, maybe a little bit of music for dramatic impact. But and you've got to do it on the fly because these newsreels were like, this is what happened earlier this week. You know, it wasn't you know obviously live TV like we're used to now, but they really wanted to be timely and and in the moment as quick as possible. So you know you're working a production line there. You're you're really cranking it out, and that that's basically how lean cut his teeth as an editor but he also did a lot of other things you know he talks of one of the supple special features about how he was allowed to just move around the set and do all kinds of different jobs because the industry was not nearly as specialized or unionized and so it was like all hands on deck and i think that's kind of where lean found his facility he was raised in a household where watching movies really wasn't allowed, wasn't really proper. But when he moved out, he was able to, you know, and went, went to boarding school, I think is where he kind of got his first love of the cinema. And it just developed into a kind of a, obviously a lifelong obsession and a, 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 eventually his career. Uh, and so he did, he had all the technical chops that, that uh, Noel Coward did not have. Uh, he was recommended. I think Noel Coward had seen some of his work as well and admired it and said, yeah, he's a good guy to bring along. And that's, that's again, where that partnership came in. Noel Coward also had the responsibility to be, you know, one of the leading actors. He was, he was the, the ship's captain of this, of this destroyer. And so he was in front of the camera quite a bit of the time. And uh, as the production went on, Noel Coward recognized that all of that technical, you know, uh, management, all of the details, all of the, you know, setting up of the cameras, adjusting the lighting and all that stuff really just did not, you know, engage with him at all. And he was very happy to let Lean take over. And as the word has it, um, he kind of almost withdrew from the technical side of the director's chair and let Lean run the show by the end of the production. Coward was basically just, he was there if he had a scene to do. And, and if he wasn't, then wasn't involved in the action then uh then david lee basically just took it over and did what he had to do and uh and that was that was the setup right there yeah and it seems uh i mean you you you've you've said it uh maybe at first coward felt like he wanted to have full control but saw in lean uh, someone he could respect. And this is coming from somebody who's worked for, you know, years as a, as a head honcho on the stage. You know, he's a personality. He's got, he's got an ego. I'm not saying it was a, an obnoxious ego, but he, he himself has, has shown that he knows what he's doing and can recognize it in other people. And he recognizes it quite quickly in David Lean and is more than happy to give him that co-director credit, not assistant director, not, you know, this is a, a coward uh, direction, thanks to David Lean, you know, for his his help. <laughs> right, right. He he does he does put it in the in the billing and uh, and then continues to work with him on on the rest of these films. I mean, uh, they they probably I'm sure they and we see hear some stories in the supplements. They you know of course clashed a little bit, but it seems like in general they were they had a very good professional relationship and some respect. I mean, David Lean. Uh, does want to go his own way at the end after these four films. Um, one of them, I can't remember if it's the the commentary by Bruce Eater uh, on Brief Encounter, says that Coward did come up to them and say, "Hey, what are we going to do next?" And they were like, "Ah, oh, no, we're, we're going to go to Dickens. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you around." Um, but you know, th- there just seems to be a burgeoning. Um, uh, 
director in David Lean. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, looking back, it's it seems inevitable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's going to he's going to become uh, a two time Academy Award winning di- director as far as his you know best picture credits and and he's got best director there as well and and various things like that. It it, it seems like he is. He is uh, ready to to take that leap um, as we go well, through these. But. I would say Lean leaped far beyond, uh, other than maybe like well, Hitchcock, obviously, although Hitchcock's career went in a different direction. But I think they are the two titans that came out of the British film industry. But, you know, we've got Anthony Asquith. We've got Gabriel Pasquale. We've got, mm-hmm. I, I guess, Powell and Pressburger. You know, they're just a little bit more eccentric. So I don't know that they became you know, kind of the monumental world beaters that Hitchcock and Lean became. But they were they're still pretty important, obviously essential, delightful creators. Uh but good I mean, discoveries that yeah. again I would never have made in my household growing up. But mm-hmm. Hitchcock and Lean Oh yes. Yeah, yes, yeah know, they, they 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 spoke to the masses, but they also I think elevated mass cultural taste. And and you know, you mm-hmm. know, maybe for another time we can get into some of the later david lean you know blockbusters because they to this day still have their critics and and detractors as and they did back in the back in their heyday even though they were pulling in huge box office that you know they were considered bloated and you know especially when you put them up against the edgier new wave stuff and 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 other kind of more you know uh, iconoclastic type of voices that are out there um you know, you you can mm-hmm. make the case that Lean became a little pompous, a little bit overbearing uh, in 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 the massiveness of his films, but they're still spectacular. I mean, see Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen sometime, and tell me you're not just utterly impressed by the the reality that this film was actually made a year in the desert and all of that. <laughs> but that's a long ways from what we're talking about right now. It's just, it's right. just amazing. A brief this trajectory, right? Yeah. A brief encounters less than 90 minutes long is actually a line in it where she goes to see a movie and gets bored because it's too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we're, we're in a different <laughs> world here for David Lee. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but there's still that connective thread and there's still that artistic eye mm-hmm. and vision. And, and then there's all those amazing films that he made in between, which again, mm-hmm. kind of setting the stage for other, other conversations other times we really do want to keep our focus uh, on on these roots but it's it's quite impressive you know where he came from and where he took it well and that's the tough thing with this set that there are tangents within tangents within tangents here because there <laughs> right. there really are so many like we've already said personalities a lot of careers going on here a lot of social issues going on here uh, this is a yeah a, 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 you're very good at doing things um, with the, in their historical context. And so I know that it's not like this. Certainly there's a lot in the sixties and seventies and, and all of that. Um, but this is a time that lives on in our imagination. Uh, you know, certainly as a child growing up in the, in the eighties, this world war two era and British culture were pretty big parts of my life. And, and so, yeah, we, we could go into so many different tangents here. Um, but yeah, let's let, get back let's, to the movie. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's jump into <laughs> to this and look at, look at in which we serve maybe a little bit closer. Um, we can probably just in, in when it comes to time and when it comes to not wanting to, to chase all these down, 
Um, what I'm thinking here is we can go through these first three movies at, mm-hmm. at a pace yeah. and then maybe settle down just a little bit for brief encounter. Sounds uh, good. Not yeah. to go long winded. We, uh, you know, the, the set is actually very loaded with um, a lot of detail about these tangents and mm-hmm. some pretty good film analysis and, uh, and uh, looks at what's going on. Um, so I, I, I guess maybe now's a good time to, to make it a little more personal with our responses to these films. Sure. And uh, and let's look at in which we serve. Do you do you mind uh, introducing yeah. us and? Yeah. Okay. It? Sure. In, in which we serve well, uh, is a 1942 film. So again, the war's been in effect for a few years in Britain. It started in 1939, and and a lot of terrible things had happened. Uh, but this was based on the real life experience of uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten, a, a very close personal friend of Noel Coward's, in which uh, he was the captain of a destroyer, the HMS Kelly, that was sunk off the off the island Crete in the Mediterranean during a skirmish in the early years of the war. And um, you know, it starts with it's in fact they, it's introduced as the story of a ship, and and it's it's mm-hmm. showing the ship being assembled at the shipyard, you know, the uh, the riveters and and all the men working. The ship is launched. It's out there doing, you know, what it's doing is it's it's out there as an offensive uh, attack vessel. That's what destroyers do. They're they're small, they're quick, and they're out there to take out the enemy. And uh, you know, there's a pretty gripping naval sea battle right at the beginning. There kind of draws you right into the action once the ship is afloat. And uh, within just the first few minutes, the ship is bombed uh, from above and and you know ultimately starts to sink and capsize. So you've got the whole drama of evacuating the ship, swimming for the lifeboats, you know, and and it's it's all pretty compelling. And then what we've got uh, from there is just kind of a, a flashback as we've got all of these men swimming through the oily waters, clinging to that flotation for dear life. And there's kind of a, a cycle of, of short stories, you could almost say, that are told as we get to know these men, all very much humbled and brought into sort of a desperate common situation. And yet among their ranks, we've got the captain of the ship as well as ordinary seamen. And the, the film basically just takes us through little vignettes of their life uh, not necessarily flashing before their eyes, but kind of what set them up to get into the situation that they're in right there. And so the overall theme is about duty, about sacrifice, about the different um, sort of classes and backgrounds that each of these men have come out of uh, to find themselves in this in this difficult, you know, challenging situation. So you've just got lots of little, you know, scenes of domestic British life. Uh, you've got the tensions of the relationships uh, of the people who are, you know, going through, uh, you know, all of the preparations. You've got the wives that are left behind. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just a very moving story. I, I actually, you know, had watched all of these films, uh, except for Brief Encounter. I'd never actually watched the the, the Blu-ray of it for who knows what reason. I'd watched it several times on DVD. I'd blogged about it years ago and really loved it. I just had not sat down to watch the Blu-ray until it came up for this podcast. But I, yeah, my impressions of the of the first two films, this one and uh, This Happy Breed, were that they're kind of, you know, they're kind of okay. Um, you know, like they're, they're your typical wartime type of movies, you know, telling stories, appealing to 
middle-class Brits of the era and all of that. But I, I don't know. I was really taken in by this one in particular. I thought, no, this is a really, uh, a really terrific film just because of the humanity. Obviously there's a little bit of a heavy hand as far as the, you know, stiff upper lip and rally the troops and, and build morale. But, you know, I, you know, you put it in context and think this, this is really talking to real people at a time of real national crisis. And I respect its intentions. And I think the way they went about it, it was just really, really impressive. Uh, You've already mentioned the the outstanding cast, uh, Richard Attenborough, very small role, but kind of launched him as his Mm -hmm. uh, own sort of a noted personality within the British culture and cinema. (laughs) So yeah, there's just a lot to like here. Um, You know, I'm not going to maybe dig into all of the the sub stories, but they they all have their own nice little arc to them. And yeah, that's kind of my quick overview anyways. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I, I you know, because I, I I tend to agree with you. These these first two in particular, they're they're episodic. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with a lot of uh, in 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 this case in which we serve uh, various characters and their stories, and and they're not necessarily connected, other than that they they are together. You know, the men are together on this ship or in the life raft afterwards or the water, you know, mm-hmm. they, they're going through all this and we're, we're getting these uh, flashes of what's going on in their, in their home lives or in their past rather. And then somewhat in their home lives as the film goes on and it can be difficult to really dissect and, and analyze yeah. each of those yeah. other than to say, I, I agree with you. Part of the compelling part of this is that each of those episodes does have real people at their heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you feel it. You, you've got uh, Coward himself playing the captain, but you've got Celia Johnson playing his wife mm-hmm. uh, back at home. And she, David, I, she <laughs> is fantastic. Really, I, yeah. Uh, there's, uh, and it's I really just it's a Ronald, part, you know, it, she's really only got yeah. a few big moments, but she really nails it, right? Yeah, and there's Ronald Neem in his supplement on here talks and just gives her so much respect. And he's not the only one. Uh, apparently, she was able to turn it on and off um, just at a whim. She could make people cry and then say, now I've got to go catch the train. You know, mm-hmm. she's she's got those big eyes. She's got that expressive but somehow clipped voice with those beautiful open vowels and all of that. I mean, she is a personality. She is so compelling and I think she stands out. This is her. This is her own uh, debut, other than I think in a like a short film or something like that right before it. And uh, she's just fantastic in it. You've got John Mills and his story. You know, um, you, you've got. <laughs> I, I just got a text from my wife, okay. who's not in here, who says, "Just marry her." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so apparently I'm going on and on about Celia Johnson here. I'll have to cool it, but she's so fantastic in these. And, and that's where, that's where I think in which we serve really stands out. And I also don't think that it, you know, of course we've got, we've got such nobility among the crew and such reverence for authority and, you know, things that we can look at and go, yeah, we could dissect that and, and criticize that. Um, but at the same time, uh, coward doesn't let it become just that this is not mere propaganda right uh he he's telling stories about real people who are going through what they're seeing on the screen in their own homes i mean it, it's it's it, it, i think it's a great starting point for 
for this set and for for Lean's career. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot to do as far as his flashy camera work and all of that. Um, apparently, that was a. I'm not sure if he really wanted to, but it was was kind of told, "Hey, we're 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 just here to tell this story, and we want it to be focused on the story and the people, and the you know the ship, and not all these flashy." camera work. And again, I don't know if he was going to ever do that, but we start to see that open up in him in some of the later films. Uh, but in this one, it's, it's, it's fairly, you know, straightforward. They did do, they, they did do some things with camera work to, to get some bigger angles and, you know, Citizen Kane had inspired some of the, Ooh, we can do more than just put this on a, on a, uh, you know, in the corner and, and film us talking. Um, but you know, it, it's not like this would necessarily suggest where he's going to go, but I think it's a great, um, a great effort, uh, a, a great team effort that gets these people together. I mean, they're, they're not only going through a war, they're going through some tough things on the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that water that they're <laughs> all dealing yeah, with. That's right. Um, apparently, uh, Ronald Neem talks about one of the most horrific moments in his career when one of the electricians um, was killed because they were putting uh, f- uh, flash uh, powder in in some camera t- uh, some film tins, and one of them was white hot, and they went and and poured more flash powder into it at that time, and it exploded through through a few yeah. of the electricians off, and one of them died. And mm-hmm. you know they're they're going through some stuff in order to make this film. It brings them t- very close together. And clearly, because they all, like so many of them, come back to work on more films, um, this was something that brought them, it kind of unified them. Well, I think those early scenes of the of the, the naval battle, the ship being attacked, I mean, that, that's where that accident occurred. They, they were simulating explosions, and so they had just filmed, you know, a set of explosions. They wanted to do a second take, but they had forgotten to let the, the pans cool off or water them down or whatever they do to get them usable again. The guy just dumped a load of flash powder and it blew up in his face and it was really, really terrible. But you, you get a sense of lean, the, you know, the future producer of epics, you know, where you've got, you know, the charge of, of hundreds of men on camels uh, or, or, you know, exploding Blowing bridges. Up a, a bridge. <laughs> exactly. So, so you've got pyrotechnics and large scale, you know, epic level filmmaking. I, I, I mean, I think that's, that was pretty interesting for me just to sort of reflect on, you know, here's, you know, David Lean uh, just stepping into the director's chair. And I was like, okay, now you've got to realistically portray uh, a big battle at sea with multiple ships firing cannons at each other, you know, aerial attacks and all of that. So, uh, you know, let's not take that kind of stuff for granted. You've, you've got to, you know, you know, you've, you've got to make this look convincing when you're, you know, on a somewhat limited budget. I mean, this was, this was definitely a big budget production. Uh, they, they've invested quite a bit, but it's still uh, just the technical challenge of, of pulling that off and making it, you know, gripping rather than laughable. Um, you know, you got, you got to have a certain talent to, to do that. And I think he did it very well. Um, what did you think about Noel Coward as the captain? You know, he, again, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's this, uh, 
you know, this this nightclub figure, this maestro, this MC, this this wit, you know, who's he's got, got a, his yeah, a uh, cigarette in one hand, yeah. a, a glass of champagne in the other, and his tuxedo up there telling stories in the spotlight. Well, he's, he's a cartoon character, that, <laughs> you know, in a yeah, way, yeah. not not to reduce him to that, but we would recognize, you know, in an old like Bugs Bunny, mm-hmm. he's one of those guys on the side who looks larger than life, you know. Well, if you think about, you know, who are the sort of the the host type of personalities, you think about your late night TV talk show hosts or people who host the Academy Awards or whatever, uh, and now all of a sudden they're playing this, you know, this rugged ship captain who's got to be, a, a you know, a, a leader amongst men, and, and his word is absolute law out there on the water, and takes no nonsense. Now, now, Coward could do that. He could be imperious. He could be authoritative and you know, no BS, let's get right down to the point. But as a military man, he's definitely cutting against type. Um, but I think, I think it's credible. I, I didn't feel, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't, I don't have the same identification with Coward, the, you know, the cultural figure, perhaps that audiences did, but I thought he was credible and it was an important role for him to, to take it on. Yeah. It's, it's probably difficult at this point in history to know how we would have responded to him back then. I know they, they, that's a criticism they had of him. And I don't necessarily think he's like the greatest actor, but I agree. I think he does a a credible job. I can't believe how fast he talks Mm -hmm. at times there. I mean, he is clipping, clipping, clipping along. And apparently he, he was not that good at first for sure. Like people noticed it. Um, I, I don't remember again, which one was talking about it. It may have been in those nice, um, little film, um, uh, supplements to each of the films by the, the film scholar, Barry Day. Uh, I think he may talk about it in, in the one for, in which we serve that, you know, Coward did a, did a take and they were watching the rushes. And I think it was John Mills who was next to him and, you know, getting embarrassed and starting to get awkward. No, what are we going to do? And, and, uh, and coward turns to him and goes, don't worry, daddy knows <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but, but coward and could what, adjust. Well, his, right. Yeah. And, and he could adjust his game and say, okay, let's try something different here. And he had it within his tool set to say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll change it. And, and it worked. Yeah. So yeah. I'll say if I had no idea who he was and I sat down to watch this movie, knowing nothing else about it, I, it would not have stood out to me as a particularly, right. um, you know, wow, that's amazing uh, performance, but it certainly wouldn't have, I don't think stood out as a, wow, who did they hire to do that? <laughs> Why did they have yeah. that guy play in the main role? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, I think he, I think he does a good job and it probably was nice for some audience members to see someone, playing a reverent type, you know, mm-hmm. in that time period, you know, yeah, he's usually looks like an upper class, even though he never, you know, he wasn't as a, as a youth, but he, to them, he might look kind of unapproachable and upper class and, and superficial and not really engaged in their lives. And here he is reverent to yeah. what everyone is going through. And you see that play out on the screen. Yeah. And identifying and, and, and with, also taking with... their misery in, in his hands too. I think that's an important part that uh, Ronald Neem talks about is that the, some of the government people they worked with did not like this picture because they felt like it, it hit a little bit too, too much on some of the dourness or, you know, we can't show a ship sink. Mm-hmm. And it was um, the, the military leader who had been on the ship who kind of said, no, 
we can and we will and won the day and it it, it does it creates a, a i think a strong picture for audience members because you show some resiliency while you're showing the actual loss they don't get out of this unscathed they lose a lot of their friends and family mm-hmm. And yeah, you could look at that as being kind of dour, but I think Coward does a really good job of, of treating it with respect and, and reverence. And I, so I, I would say his personality kind of um, maybe underlines that a little bit for some. Well, I think, you know, some, like you say, some might see him as kind of posh or, or elite or, or distant from all mm-hmm. that, but he's no, I'm going to identify with the people because we are all in this together. The, mm-hmm. You know, the, the public understands that the war has gone well. Maybe the, the admirals don't want to acknowledge that occasionally the skirmishes don't end well. They don't want to you know, go through the visualization of seeing one of their, you know, great ships, uh, one of Her Majesty's fleet sinking and going down. But I think by taking the risk and acknowledging the truth and the reality of what was going on, Coward was able to respect his audience and people, you know, I think viewers do respond favorably when they feel like they're not being talked down to or just being kind of given this condescending little pat on the head and saying, oh, it'll be okay. Uh, sometimes the the military command can get a little bit too wrapped up in its own uh, sense of having to control perceptions and 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 steer the narrative when people really know what's going on that that times are tough that this war has not been decided yet that we may face even further adversity that's part of building morale through these types of movies is stealing our nerves for the fact that we're not out of this yet and uh, things may get even tougher but we're going to persevere we're going to see this thing through and uh and i think that's that's one of the essential contributions of this film uh beyond you know the the admittedly impressive visuals and like I say, all the careers that were kind of, you know, launched from, from this very impressive production. I think it's been considered one of those top hundred British films of all time, even though the reputation has perhaps faded a little bit. And there's been a lot of other excellent British films made in the years since some of those polls were first taken. (laughs) But yeah, we can move on to this happy breed now, unless you want to respond to that. Well, it just, it did bring to mind, you and I have talked about a pretty good number of um, World War II propaganda Mm -hmm. films. Mm -hmm. Uh, both in the Kurosawa set and uh, some of the French sets, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I wouldn't put this as as high as I would put maybe one or two of the Kenoshitas, mm-hmm. but I would put it over Kurosawa's um, efforts for the very reasons <laughs> yeah. that you just kind of yeah. credited this film. He he was kind of bound to show just the good and. Um, and that didn't really work for either of us, I don't think. Well, and I think he uh, was under the rule of a much more right. tyrannical government system. I mean, you know, and Churchill and the British, I mean, they certainly had their authoritarian streaks as well. I mean, every nation does when it's involved in a you know cataclysmic war like this. Right. Um, but, but the results just happen to be a little bit, a little bit different. So, yeah. But yeah, let, let's move on to this happy breed, which can in some ways be considered a, a war film. It was, it was a 1941 play. And even though its story takes place right after World War One, it starts in 1919 and then goes up to right before World War II in 1939, uh, it's, it's in many ways, it still feels like a 1940s uh, war film to me. 
I can't quite put my finger on why, other than you, you've got the shadow of the war simply because people know it's coming. And they do bring it up every once in a while. You know, Hitler comes into power in 33. Uh, oh, I think war is inevitable. Oh, how could we do that? We just did a war, you know, and we're never going to go to war again. I mean, it, it comes up. But I wouldn't say the story so much about that, but it does still feel um, it, it feels like a 40s war film to me. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's one of those things like um, in which we serve talked about this is how we fight. This is how we endure and, you know, put our best, you know, foot forward, all of that. Um, this happy breed is kind of what we're fighting for, you know, the, the British you know, way of life. Um, each of these little houses <laughs> are the same, but have different people right. in them. <laughs> right. And, and, and it's, and it's, it is one of these kind of generation defining types of films. I mean, I don't know if the analogy sounds weird, but it's almost like a Forrest Gump of its time, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. we're going to kind of take little highlights of the last 20 years of our collective lives and recreate them, revisit them, uh, re-experience those feelings, uh, you know, that, that we had at different junctures along the way and bring it right up to, you know, recent memory, you know, current events even, and, uh, and just try to capture some of that as a way of, again, pulling the society together, giving, um, viewers some things to think about, you know, apply, you know, where do you fit into this? How does, how do these characters relate to your own roles within your family within the society because that's the thing you, you just got not only just the, the saga of this very you know ordinary middle class family um you know the husband and wife their three children as they're growing up and all the little you know situations that they go through but mm-hmm. you've got different sort of social types you know you've got the the young firebrand who's all lit up about social injustice and and wanting to reform society in the aftermath of the war and then you've got uh you know the the boy next door another john mills performance as he's a sailor <laughs> you know kind of going off to sea he's got a kind of a crush on the youngest daughter of this couple and so you've got you know little bits of uh, domestic uh, melodrama uh, relationships, uh, what's going to come of the kids, how are they going to land as they grow up. Uh, there's, there's tragedy along the way. There's, there's cheer, you know, funny moments. There's a little bickering uh, mother-in-law and a sister who live in the household. They kind of liven things up with their little, you know, verbal jousting back and forth. And so you've got, you know, it's, it's just this little well-rounded uh, slice of life, you know, some comedy, some tragedy, some politics, some social concerns, uh, just, you know, and then the Charleston. And like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fads and, and fashions. And so yeah. it's, it's one of those things where, you know, like a Forrest Gump, you know, again, that's another movie that yeah, gets a lot of flack these days. And I understand some of that too, but there's a certain pleasure in sort of seeing moments of your life from recent years being recaptured and it's kind of like yep that's our story right there i can see myself in this guy or in that lady and and i think that's that's what we're talking about here and again it's 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 the scripting it's the wit you know the the banter back and forth which is another thing that noel coward does very well i mean the, the characters kind of you know uh tossing lines back and forth but but with with great style and verve it, it was you know it's again it's it's entertaining uh, you find yourself kind of getting drawn up in these characters and the performers uh who bring them to life so yeah i mean that's that's basically yeah. it, it to me it's it's a, a nice 
time well spent, I think about an hour and 45 minutes. So it feels a little long sometimes, but um, I enjoyed it. And again, it's a, it's a nice portrayal of what the society was like in that, you know, interim between the two world wars, um, aiming to, to pull people together to, again, uh, look forward to, to the future with some sense of hope and optimism. We're a little bit further into the war. It's now beginning to look a little bit more likely that, you know, the British uh, empire will, will, will survive this conflict and life will go on and we'll have another day of celebration, not too far from now where we'll have another bring the boys home parade and, and uh, hopefully be able to resume uh, the good life that we've been able to establish for ourselves. So that's that's basically the, the gist of this happy breed. Yeah, let's let's dig into some of the 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 actors again. I mean, we've talked about a few of them. I mean, uh, Celia Johnson comes back as Ethel Gibbons. She's the 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 mother, the matriarch of this home. Uh, she's got some strong moments uh, in, in the film where she's not going to take it anymore or, you know, where she's, uh, you know, kind of mourning the loss of time or of people that she cares for. Um, and then you've got uh, Robert Newton, who -hmm. plays Frank Gibbons, her husband. Well, there's a character for us. And you you do learn a lot about him in, in some of the supplements, Ronald Neem in particular talks about him in an almost mournful tone, mm-hmm. um, like, man, there was a great personality at a great actor who seemed to only be able to act when he had been drinking. And, and he had to hit that right point. If he drank too much, he was impossible, yeah. but if he had nothing to drink, he was a dud. <laughs> so yep. Yep. And uh, yeah. I, I was intrigued enough. I looked it up. And I, this is Wikipedia. Please mm-hmm. forgive me listeners. If I'm, you know, uh, if I'm overreaching uh, in, in some of these, but apparently he, he was, his kind of hard living lifestyle and his drinking and all of that served as an example for such figures as Keith Moon and <laughs> Oliver Reed. That's what the Wikipedia says. Now, yeah, again, yeah. I, I don't know, but it, I think it is notable that each one of them are kind of famous for their their drinking and their lifestyle. And each oh, one yeah. of them probably, uh, you know, that contributed a great deal to their early deaths and, and, I don't see a whole lot of that in his performance here. He doesn't look volatile. You can see that. I think when you watch a, an Oliver Reed movie, I mean, he, I, I'm like, man, I, even when he's trying to play someone pleasant, I'm like, I don't, I, yeah. I love the guy, but I don't ever want to see him on the street, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. There's definitely danger lurking just below the surface and erupting yeah. all too often. Right. And, and I don't see that in, in his um, character of Frank Gibbons. He seems very, uh, jovial at times, but but you can see a distinct personality. He does not seem the quintessential 1940s film father figure. Um, he has to teach some lessons and step back and all that. But I I really appreciated his performance in this play as the as the yeah. father of, of this home. You know, bringing up his children over the course of 20 years, uh, living in this home uh, with with his wife and the the stories that he goes through. So I, I did like getting to know Robert Newton a little bit better uh, through this set. Yeah, he's pretty lively. I mean, he's a returning war vet, but he doesn't seem like he's seen the hardest of action. He doesn't appear to have had any significant injuries or traumatic you know, responses or anything like that. And I'm sure there were a fair number of men who served in some capacity were, you know, even for the full extent of the war, but for whatever reason, were never sent right up to the 
front lines of the infantry and they were just kind of part of the large stock of of uh, men you know oh and and i think there's also kind of that sense of you, you just sort of put that behind you and you get on with your life and and uh, you don't don't dwell on the past which was i'm sure a pretty major coping mechanism for most if not all of the people who you know mm-hmm. were involved in that conflict so you're right so he's he's kind of portraying and he's got this neighbor guy too uh, <laughs> both of them who would you know kind of gone in other directions but find themselves living right next door to each other uh having yeah. had some common experiences together in the war and so again they're connected that. through that for exactly sure. there's some camaraderie some fellowship there some some shared understanding of of what it was like uh but then you're right they they the, the war's done now we've got to build our lives and uh and raise these kids and uh, take up residence in this little you know this this row house uh in Clapham, I guess this is like South. Yeah, this is considered suburban. I look at it on a map. It's like, dude, that seems right pretty there. right there in the <laughs> middle, you know. And I'm sure it's probably a very, uh, you know, uh, not ritzy, but it, you know, I'm sure it's pr- pretty expensive living there now, being as close to you know the the heart of London as it is. Um, but at that time, it was a little bit you know, out there and kind of uh, you know the ordinary working fellows. Uh, where, where they dwelt and so you know that's that's the uh that's the life that's being portrayed here i guess there's a film he made uh that coward uh wrote a play called cavalcade which is adapted for film i think it, it even won an academy award um hmm. in the early 30s so this is seen as kind of a follow-up but cavalcade was a little bit more about upper middle class lifestyle this is a little bit more working class ordinary folks so you know it's it, like i say it's it's really kind of a, a period family drama in some way. Um, but I liked it for what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And, and the neighbor, uh, mm-hmm. it's, his name is Bob Mitchell. Yep. He is played by Stanley Holloway. Mm-hmm. We'll see it a little bit later in, in brief encounter as well. So mm-hmm. it is nice to see that, but yeah, kind of, a just, you know, I, I will say this. I had only seen this film once before when it came on Blu-ray mm-hmm. and I have a bunch of, films that I've never seen that are sitting in my closet. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't feel like I was wasting my time rewatching this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give it that, you know, it's, it, it's not my favorite film. I don't know when I'll watch it again, uh, but I don't feel like it was time misspent in any, in any way. Uh, again, a lot of, because the stories, you know, it's nice to just see some of these characters. We, 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 again, we've got Kay Walsh um, playing a pretty big role. Um, a role that does seem to me, you know, again, I, I think some of this is because of the British uh, censors and not so much because of Noel Coward <laughs> in his writing. Uh, but she kind of gets her comeuppance as being someone who might go above her station or try mm-hmm. to get out of out of this middle class life. That's something that's very enforced in in British culture. And and um, so that's an interesting thing. And I can see that being fairly distasteful to to modern audiences in particular because of the um, way she kind of is domesticated and comes around at the end yep, there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Saved by, by the good neighbor boy, uh, uh played by John Mills. Uh, for those who don't know, father of like Haley Mills, that's how I would have ever mm-hmm. known him in, mm-hmm. in my life. Um, uh, just before she's born actually, I guess is when this, uh, this film's being made. So, um, but but still, again, that's kind of how why I love the picture. It it isn't because it's a culture or a viewpoint that I endorse, but it is a, a predominant culture and viewpoint, and I enjoy seeing um, 
them grapple with it and and try to to live it and i think there's a lot of value in that uh and again here we are david lean Mm -hmm. filming in technicolor Mm-hmm. Um, with Ronald Neem be, behind him, uh, you know, doing the work on the set to make sure it doesn't look too brilliant, you know, painting the walls gray yeah. instead Dingy of white. <laughs> the place, right? right. Yeah. And it's pretty, it's pretty spectacularly colorful for this how this film shot mainly in in a home, <laughs> you know. That it, it, it is nice to see Lean and his second film. Well, his first as solo director, mm-hmm. um, shooting in in that. You know, already kind of going. Hmm, what can we do visually here? Boom! <laughs> Let's do it in Technicolor. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's because they the, the studio had had kind of ambitious hopes for this mm-hmm. film. They they really again wanted to. It, it is because you're right. Technicolor was certainly a very deliberate choice and a, an, an expensive one. Uh, if you filmed in Technicolor, then Technicolor sent out advisors to kind of oversee <laughs> the whole production, and and even even to the point of meddling and 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 kind of trying to direct how shots are set up and and how colors show off. Mm-hmm. But you're right, taking um, samples of the wallpaper back home yeah. to show their show the executives. <laughs> exactly. So so this is a film that definitely had some ambition behind it, and I guess you know maybe from a sort of a cultural analysis you know why you know why did they project such hopes and intentions upon this relatively small scale you know family drama is what it turns out to be you know there i mean i think the the parade scenes i think some mm -hmm. there there are moments where again you get that sense of scale and spectacle and color uh the solemnity even of, of the soldiers uh the different troops there's a you know kind of an american regiment that's that's paraded through so you do have those times of capturing history in color i think that's probably one of the main rationales for for the extra investment Mm -hmm. but but you're right a lot of the domestic drama really could have been told just as well in in monochrome so uh you know just the fact that you've got this early example of technicolor makes it kind of a unique um experience as well I think you hit the nail on the head earlier as to why they expected it to do so well. And I think it did. I think he was making money on these mm-hmm. pictures, you know, if you look at it from that perspective. And I think it was well liked. Um, but this is a play, you know, this is uh, brought from a, a coward play. 1941 mm-hmm. is when this play premiered. I think mm-hmm. it had been written just a little bit earlier, but, and and it's a hit. And who can imagine why? But I think it's for, you know, it's Forrest Gump, as you said. This yeah. is people in, in the 90s looking back on the last 20 years and feeling pretty good about themselves um, and and being able to, to see things reverently, but also look where we've come. Um, I think it was a, a, a major impact because of the, again, the time period that it was made in, in the, in the, right in the war. And, you know, here's the culture we are fighting to preserve. I think you said it so well earlier. I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty confident that's why they said, let's make this one and let's make it special. Again, it's a wartime film, even though it doesn't uh, necessarily have fighting or anything like that in it. So are we ready to move on to something quite different? Yes. Blythe Spirit? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> 1945 is when this one comes out and it's based on a play that um was was first air, first came out in 1939 and very different from what we've been seeing so far i mean this is a, this is out of left field i think and it seems like it was for everybody involved um 
again, I can't remember which supplement it's in, but it doesn't seem like David Lean liked the story. Rex Harrison didn't like the story. Uh, I think they ran off a few more who were just weren't happy about their roles. Even even Margaret Rutherford, who has such a big personality and mm-hmm. played this on stage, um, didn't like the play or something like didn't like the well the the, the yeah. story at at first anyway, and then I, seems to have kind of made it her own. But well, I think Rutherford actually was a an earnest uh, believer in spiritualism and mm-hmm. felt that she was being asked to, to perform as sort of a mockery, you know, um, and and she had to be reassured <laughs> that this is this is a this is a lampoon of fake spiritualists, you know. Uh, but I think you know she she threw herself into it, and I think she she actually comes across as one of the the best performances in the yeah, whole thing. Um, I think so too. But I think you're even right, though I, Rex Harrison seemed to despise working with her, what a Rex Harrison thing to do. Well, yeah, that is like par for the course <laughs> with that guy. And and you know the way the the story was originally written for kind of more of an ordinary uh, middle class fellow, you know. He, uh, somebody a little bit older maybe a little bit you know dumpier than than rick rex harrison but he was a an appealing leading man of of the moment and uh they they wanted to put together you know the the winning production i i think this probably to me even though i went into it thinking that um blithe spirit and brief encounter were the two stars of this set I, I kind of consider this one the, the least of the four now, as far as my regard mm. for it. It doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it, but it feels a little bit more like just a diversion and a little a little hollow at a certain point. You know, I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of humor. There's there's some great moments, and it's you know I appreciate it for what it is, but uh, there's a little. It, it felt probably the most disposable of the four. That would it be. definitely doesn't seem. It's the odd duck in mm-hmm. in the set. It, it's mm-hmm. the black sheep in a way. Uh, the others have some sophistication in terms of the story, um, as well as some reverence to things. And this is a lark for for yeah. sure. Yeah. One well liked on stage um, for you know. And, and I, I'll tell you, I think the first time I watched this with um, in the context of getting the set it was a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. because at that time I, I hadn't dug into the features. I did, you know, I, I would think I was ready for something quite different and yeah. more, more um, just Saturday afternoon, you know, let's watch something funny and silly and see that side of coward's work. And so I, I may have overrated it at the time, mm-hmm. but I might, I might agree with you. What you're saying now is, is pretty fair that the others have a lot going to them for behind the scenes and, you know, the stories they're trying to tell and the, the, re- the reason that they even exist. It's quite different from Blythe spirit. Um, I, I will say I was, I, I'm always shocked when the supplements are like, this film's kind of trash. This film's disposable. <laughs> yeah. And it seemed like that's what everyone thought. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I still mm-hmm. have a really good time with the film. Well, I'm certainly but, glad we have it. And like you say, there's <laughs> and and this yeah, this is you're right. This is Noel Coward, the entertainer. You know, he's just there mm-hmm. to to generate some laughs and some uh, aha moments of just <laughs> just kind of you know how you've got the characters going back and forth. Uh, there's a gentle lampooning, I would say, of this whole spiritualism fad that I think it sort of was 
sweeping mm-hmm. through the nation uh, at a, at the time of communicating with those on the other side and just all of the you know the the humbuggery of of a séance and getting <laughs> people together you know you know downing a few cocktails and 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 having a laugh and even the whole idea of um, you know the writer who's doing research for his uh, his novel maybe he's a little bit stuck and looking for some some fresh angles some inspiration some kind of experience that he can you know transfer form into his next you know offering because he's got he's a he's a known writer now he's got uh, pressures to produce. I mean, that's always <laughs> been a, a great go-to for for playwrights and and uh, film directors and and others of kind of getting a little bit meta. Here's my process, and here's how I go about getting fresh material for whatever I've got in the works. You know, so so yeah, those those are some fun things. And again, the performers are are, are very enjoyable just to kind of watch them going through their motions. But there are there are times where I felt like the the premise was pretty well set up. You've got a guy whose wife passed away, you know, prematurely tragic. Obviously he's still a young guy. He he loved his wife, um, you know, Seven years before the events of the play, right? Or the and, show. and now he's since remarried, so he's got another wife. Um, his first wife seemed to be a little bit more lively and spirited, and uh, you know, no pun intended there, but but she was just kind of <laughs> funny, witty, uh, you know, life of the party, and and perhaps one of those wives that might be considered, you know, it's sort of the, the thinking of the time a little little hard to handle, you know, but but a lot of fun. Uh, now he's married to another woman who's much more, uh, you know, kind of mature, settled, and and does a little bit more of that management thing of of keeping her husband in line and productive. Uh, she's a sensible woman, and so he's got this contrast between the memories of his first wife, who was, you know, you know, very attractive apparently, and and had a bit of a reputation, and now his new wife is, uh, you know, there's a little insecurity as she compares herself to whatever sort of, uh, you know, ghost might be lurking in his imagination as he recalls his first marriage. And so that, that's the premise that's kind of played with here as, uh, as a result of this seance, uh, somehow or another, his, the spirit of his first wife comes back, but is visible only to him. And so he's got to <laughs> sort of balance out the fact that he's having these very vivid hallucinations or these exchanges with a woman who is there, but he's the only one who could perceive that. So there's a there's some really fun kind of mistaken uh, identity type of thing of, of he's talking to uh, Elvira, his, his, his dead wife, uh, but his present wife uh, thinks that she's talking to him or he's talking to her. And so you've, you've got all that playing around with you know, oh, you're being ridiculous, and she takes it as an insult when he's actually talking to his dead wife. So you know, it's just, it's just that kind of banter that is kind of fun to 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 play with. At the that's kind of the early stages of the film. As as the plot sort of develops, I don't know. It just it just felt like it kind of kept he was having a hard time keeping that momentum, or at least the way the story unfolded on film. Maybe on stage it works a little bit differently. It it might just because of the. The immediacy. Some of these larks mm-hmm. do, I think, work better when you're, especially if you have someone like Margaret Rutherford often on stage, right in your face, doing yeah. her thing. Um, but apparently, he wrote this in four days, and okay. uh, then they 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 did the product stage production just like a few weeks later, 
where he changed a line in rehearsals and that's it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think people still really liked it. He was not happy with the film. I won't say what he said, because then we'd have to make this a mature thing. But he, he was not happy with the, the film. And again, this is not something that David Lean particularly cared about. This was a, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that he, he found himself roped up in doing it because he doesn't seem to have any reverence for the material. Didn't seem to inspire him to do much with his camera. You know, a lot of this is shot in, in simple rooms uh, where with this happy breed, he was clearly interested in getting outdoors and doing a few other things with, with uh, the camera. This seems to be something he put together. And then the ending is changed mm-hmm. for the, for, because of the sensors slightly, very so slightly to a very non Noel Coward ending, <laughs> you know, ends on a punchline rather mm-hmm. than on a on a you know middle finger in a way, right. <laughs> um, and doesn't you know it works because it's almost you can see it coming, it, you know it's so predictable, yeah, and seems to give the characters their comeuppance where Coward did not care at all about that he was you know uh, much different. I, I think the film can be criticized for its you know kind of portrayal of of women and the nags and mm-hmm. and all of that especially when you have again rex harrison playing the 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 husband who just gets delight out of out of it and doesn't really seem to it's not like he's cruel uh, in this necessarily um but he doesn't take their i don't know their feelings to heart <laughs> you know he'll go to bed if he's tired of being with them or he'll leave mm-hmm. you know um and takes uh, a great, great delight in their arguments um, when, when things start to go that direction. So I think there's a lot that we could criticize and talk about with the film. I'm not sure that we need to, though, because yeah. dang it, David, we've got a better film <laughs> to yeah. talk about. And, and that's fine. I think, I think you know, <laughs> probably, you know, it, it is another sort of technicolor treat. It is interesting to learn a little bit more about some of the special effects and things of that sort that uh, were, you know, I'm sure pretty pretty delightful um in in their original era um even <laughs> the, the the lighting and the green makeup and all of that type of thing um uh, you know the, the acting is 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 amusing it's charming uh so it's yeah. very british and, yeah and, yeah know, exactly it's very rex harrison yeah yeah and and you're right and those chauvinistic assumptions uh you know watching the two women bicker with each other while he sort of sadistically lets them go through their emotions yeah that that and rex harrison himself i mean his reputation has not aged all that well let's just keep it at that you know <laughs> he, he could put in some pretty pretty you know slick performances and he's a pro he's he's you know had a very long and and uh, uh eventful career and, and somewhat distinguished but uh, yeah that's that's i'll about, say this yeah, yeah. the rex harrison who played in blithe spirit would have hated to see the Rex Harrison who played Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> if he'd known then what he was yeah. going to be doing, he would have, I wonder what he would have done to himself. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> boy, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, let, let's, let's do, um, let's do move on to Brief Encounter. Let's. Uh, just a, you know, kind of a gem of the set. It's the one that Criterion had, had released before and then, you know, a few years ago released it again on standalone Blu-ray I think to give people the option of, Hey, you can, you can still get this masterpiece without having to buy the full set. I still would recommend the full set, but if you're not going to do anything else, watch brief encounter. I don't, you know, this Mm -hmm. is, this is the, the reason that this set exists in my mind. If it weren't for this film, there'd be some curiosities probably would have been an eclipse set. Maybe, you know, David lean and, and Noel coward, 
but you've got this this masterpiece in here of brief encounter it's a it was a one act play um called still life uh put on in 1936 um it's not cognizant of the war um it it's kind of now a little maybe you know distant from the war to an extent and i think is very strong in its portrayal of in particular Celia Johnson's uh, situation and as a British middle-class uh, housewife. And the play, you know, is quite different. Again, a one act play takes place in one location. And when, when you watch it, the, you don't know who's the main character necessarily, because you've got the, the, the man and the woman on stage talking mm-hmm. uh, to each other. They're both the main character. They're both going through things together, then, always in the same And then there's the part. other couple, too. I mean, obviously, this is the, the main couple, mm-hmm. but then there's the, the the policeman and the woman behind the counter. Yeah. Stanley, and Stanley Holloway right, and coming exactly. back. <laughs> and, and they're contrasted with each other because you've got a little right. bit of a class thing. You've got the kind of common folks who are you know pretty free and occasionally coarse and, and rough and tumble and <laughs> how they interact with each other. And then you've got this little more respectable upper, not, not really upper middle class, but, but very solidly middle class, you know, yeah. uh, everything's orderly and uh, by the rules and um, you just don't let yourself get too far out of line. That That's the tension right there of this, of this whole setup. And it's a, it's a brilliant move. And I think this was David Lean mm-hmm. to make it so that uh, Celia Johnson's character, she, she's playing a woman named Lara, um, is the center focus of the film. Mm-hmm. You can't do that on the stage. Um, but in the in this film, she's the one who is essentially narrating the film in the form of a confession mm-hmm. to her unsuspecting husband who's sitting on the other side of the room. Mm-hmm. This is why this film just hits me with the force of a, a, you know, of a hammer because I love pictures that can, that can show all of the turmoil going on within our lives. Even when we're just sitting in our living rooms at night, quietly listening to the radio. Mm -hmm. And that's all that's going on here in a way. All of this is going on in her recollection and in her head and all of these emotions and she portrays it as an act of violence, this mm-hmm. love affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't think her emotions as an act of violence against an ordinary person. She did not know that ordinary people could could have such an act of violence. Mm-hmm. And it's about her. It's about her situation in life, which she's contented, but not necessarily passionate about. And here she's provided with this idol, this this momentary brief encounter with another man. And has to deal with her guilt, with her pleasure, with all of the desires, and I just think it's 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 a a brilliant look at the lives that we lead quietly, mm-hmm. and the passions that we feel that we would, you know, that, that, that we would never recognize in someone else. And and she even says that in the picture, she's confessing it to him in her mind. She will never tell him because even in their old age, if she tells him then it'll still reinvent every moment that they've lived together since she simply can't, can't actually tell him. And I just think the film is so sensitive and brilliant in, in walking us through what Celia Johnson is going through. It certainly, I mean, it's the other thing that I love about it is it portrays this as painful. 
Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a, a, a love affair that is, um, that is just pure delights and, oh, it needs to end. That's too bad. She's in agony yeah. <laughs> through yeah. the whole thing yeah. and yet can't stop, wants to stop every time. And, and, and listeners, in case you haven't heard it before, I mean, this is an unconsummated love affair. I mean, it, it, it's right. the beginning of, of a potential affair more than it is actually, you know, her being, you know, uh, quote unquote, unfaithful um, in, 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 in any, you know, physical sense to her husband. Um, but it's, I think all the more powerful for that. It's, it's about the, her guilt, her shame, her, her ecstasy, her desire, and contrasting that with her, her life. Um, her husband is a decent fellow. You know, he seems to genuinely care about her. Um, they're not necessarily passionate, but they, they, they're, they're there for each other. And you see that through the film. He, mm-hmm. he does love her and cares. He, he's, he's attentive at times and unattentive at others, you know, as many of us are in our, in our marriage. You, you have your days. You, you, you go and sit down and at night and the night's all of a sudden over and maybe you haven't talked that much right. to the person sitting on the other side of the room. But he's not portrayed as a monster oh, or as someone right. undesirable or, or uh, unsuitable for her. He's just not... Trevor Howard's Dr. Alec Harvey, you know, and, and <laughs> right, I'm not even right. going to say Trevor. When I say Trevor Howard, like that sounds like here, we've got some sex symbol coming out on the screen. He's not, he's a respect. He looks like a doctor. He looks like the doctor, you know, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. see. Um, yeah. He's just a sensitive, just, kind-hearted man who takes some mm-hmm. interest in her as a person. And he's, he's something new, something fresh, something unexpected. Right. Fred's over there on the sofa doing his crossword puzzle. Uh, you know, Laura's there doing her knitting, or at least trying to. She, you know, she's too distracted at this point. And then there's the the music that kind of you yeah. know, breaks up the silence. You know, he'll call out asking for the clue or to help have her help him out with a with a particularly tough nugget on the crossword puzzle. And brilliant some, editing, yeah, brilliant little chit chat there. Just just little innocuous exchanges that very typical after dinner dialogue while the kids are up in bed and, and uh, you know, the domestic ship is kind of just, you know, sailing along. Uh, Darling, are you right. all right? You know? <laughs> yes. Yes. And she's got a faraway look in her eyes and he's wondering and, uh, and she can only begin to describe and, and all she can do is sort of compose herself and, and get back, back on track again. But, you know, you mm-hmm. think about the first three films that we've talked about, where you've got, you know, a, a ship being sunk, people shipwrecked. Uh, you've got, you know, all of the, you know, the tragedy, you know, the, the couple that's killed in a car accident in this happy breed and even the, you know, the death of spouses uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and the, even the protagonist <laughs> at the very end there, I mean, you, you've got some really painful life circumstances Nothing of that scale happens here in terms of permanent yeah. death and injury, and yet the the this is emotional not a big pain and anguish is is exquisite and and overwhelming once you kind of sink into the 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 character, and yet that that fly on the wall that all seeing eye would just look at this domestic scene and say, oh, all is well, <laughs> you know, everything's hunky dory except for the the anguish that is going on within the heart of. Of, of Laura uh, in particular and, and also by extension um, 
the uh, the Trevor Howard character, mm-hmm. even though we we are only kind of given more of an exterior look at at his anguish. This is very much Celia Johnson's picture, and um, very uh, much so. Yeah, and 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 this is probably you know maybe a majority of of women will identify with this character more than men, but I think there's a lot of men who can recognize you know echoes of of our own experience in this and i certainly i I would hope so i would hope so too because i think i think anytime you've been in a committed relationship there's going to be those moments where things get into sort of a routine and then something comes up some new person some kind of new even if even if it's a new interest or a a new uh way of spending time but this this here feels very personal i think that's that's the universality of the of the story here is that uh, our lives are capable of being <laughs> profoundly disrupted by these chance uh, events, these brief encounters that, you know, if fully acted upon, could blow everything to smithereens. And, and yeah, that's not necessarily the way we want life to go, but at the same time, there's a huge sacrifice in denying yourself that opportunity to explore this road less traveled i've still got to end this podcast and step out and see what damage was done because of my (laughs) effusive praise of celia johnson earlier you know my (laughs) wife didn't didn't know about my uh, uh... (laughs) Um, one thing i want to bring up too and i've brought this up before i believe it was in our eclipse viewer episode on Mm -hmm. Chantel ackerman Mm -hmm. who also does such a tremendous job of showing the quiet interior lives of people walking down the street or staying in a hotel room or, you know, making dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's a quote from an Alice Monroe story that she has in her uh, masterpiece, Lives of Girls and Women. And this is what Monroe writes in there. She says, people's lives, not women. I think that's important. People's right. lives right. in Jubilee as elsewhere were dull, simple, amazing, and unfathomable. Deep caves paved with kitchen linoleum. Yeah! Wow! Just <laughs> nice. tremendous, yeah. and I, I, I yeah. see that. It, I, that. That's one of the reasons this is one of my favorite movies. Is it just explores those deep caves? You know, the unfathomable part of this. And one, one thing I'll touch on. You know, you mentioned we're dealing with Celia Johnson for sure, and she, you know, her character Lara. Um, but that it, it's also Trevor Howard going through some of this. You know, he he knows what she's going through because he's feeling it himself. The mm-hmm. the guilt. The the um, the uh, just lack of understanding, uh, you know, the, the almost regret that this had started, but the the pure delight that it has. I think I I think the ending of the picture shows that this is a way in a way going on with Lara's husband on the other side of the room, and mm-hmm. he's sitting there and he tells her he recognizes that she has been distant uh, lately. Mm-hmm. And he's so glad that she has come back. Mm-hmm. And he's going through something on his side of the room through these weeks where he's recognizing something's going on with her. I don't know what it is. I'm trying, you know, I, I'm here to help with the kids. I'm here to to support her. And we don't know anything about that from his side of the room. You know, he looks like he's just sitting there doing a crossword puzzle. But he isn't. Mm -hmm. He, too, is living an interior life that is concerned about her and concerned about their their relationship. 
And we don't know that at all until the very last, you know, 30 seconds of the movie. Um, and I just think it's so powerful about that. I love that it comes together. I know some people are probably like, oh, you know, he's just the dull guy. She she needs the passion in her life. How could they have them come together? That's such a a, a, a censorship thing to do. Well, I, I disagree. I think that it is an absolutely astonishing uh, way of opening this up and showing kind of like kind of like this happy breed, you know, zooms away from the row houses and shows you know, a billion other row houses that are the exact same. And you realize this is, you know, not just one story, but everybody is going through things in their lives. Um, This does it, but I think in a much more profound uh, way uh, because it's that interior as you're just sitting there, you know, sweeping your floor, doing the crossword, waiting for night to come so you can go to bed. Mm -hmm. And I love that it's a confession um, I love the way she, you know, I, I don't know how much of this was written, you know, by Coward himself, because a lot of the confession is not something that's in the play. Right. But I do understand that he, they would often send him bits and say, hey, we need 30 seconds on this. And he would send it back and say, here's 27 um, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, but I also believe that David Lean and... Um, and maybe even Ronald Neem a little bit were working on on scenes and and then getting them you know but kind of passed off by coward so it does seem like there's a pretty good group effort but the writing in this thing you know those little those little lines of um I don't even want to try to say them because I'd be too imprecise right but there's so much that she says in here that just really strikes at the heart of of um of what she's going through and and shows shows this there's moments of levity you know when they're outdoors and it's light in the town or mm-hmm. the film you know they're laughing and then there's the moments of absolute dread and despair simply because they're being there there's two worlds and oh man yeah it, i love it <laughs> well yeah and i th- I, th- I think howard obviously had to get in on the scheme because the, the original play which i've never seen or even read but if you just sort of whittle brief encounter down to those moments in the train you know mm-hmm. uh you know, the, the kitchen shop uh, cafe whatever you want to call it um it's it's about the encounter of these two people coming together and there's an ambivalence you can tell well they're not married to each other but they're having these intimate moments there's probably some descriptions of things that that they're doing off stage or do you, do you they, mind if i have a quick second yeah. here sorry sure, go ahead i yeah. do want you to get at the beginning of this picture, mm-hmm. too, um, we don't know who's the main characters right, because right. all you see is over in the corner this mm-hmm. couple. They don't look they don't look like movie stars right. sitting over in the corner closely, kind of talking to each other. They look like extras, mm-hmm. and I love that little touch too. So, sorry, what you just said reminded me of that, and I wanted to jump in with that. That yeah. you know that a little bit more of that era of people just sitting on the other side of the train station from you, who knows what violence is going on in their lives. (laughs) Exactly. And, and so, you know, once we are going to take this little stage vignette, this little, you know, uh, one act uh, situation uh, that ends on an ambivalent note, you know, they, they part ways, but will they find a way to get back together? Where exactly did this relationship go? I mean, some of those, you know, ambivalent, um, possibilities are really eliminated once we see 
you know, that this, this relationship really was never consummated. It was very chaste. There's a kiss, there's a few embraces, uh, but that's as far as they let themselves go. But they also got a chance to travel around and you sort of get some of the, the happiness that they felt, uh, whether that's sitting, uh, you know, in the uh, mezzanine of a, of a cheap theater, rowing a boat down the river, taking a walk across a, an old stone bridge, you know, so, but, but what, what, they're, what they're finding in each other is this, is this refreshment, this kind of new energy when life seems to have just settled into a, a dull, predictable routine, all of a sudden there's like this burst of new possibilities and, and, and you're right. There, there's a there's a an opportunity, perhaps to to find joy and energy and and satisfaction, and yet everything about you know the order of things and the responsibilities that we have to other people says no, this cannot be. Uh, we meet uh, Laura's children. We see that one of her sons has had a concussion. You know, so mm-hmm. you know, is she really going to walk out on all of that? I I, I appreciate the fact that. This is a story that acknowledges again, you know, the 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 pain and the hardship of maintaining domestic tranquility. And uh, you know, as a guy who's been married for thirty six years now, and has raised children to adulthood, um, yeah, I'll just say it's not always been easy. There's there's definitely things that you you have to say, nope, I'm not going to do that because I've got other values, other priorities, other commitments, and this film very exquisitely captures all of that um with with both an acknowledgement of the of the you know genuine loss and sorrow that sometimes happens when you have to stay on the track that you've committed to um as well as just recognizing that um I don't know. Life is a long game, you know, and and you've got to keep that perspective. I, I appreciate the fact that they they don't um, become overindulgent or or even try to um, glossy up the you know the 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 whirlwind romance or or make it more sensational than it really is because it's it's really pretty modest the, the things that they mm-hmm. do together. Um, but it, it is that sense of connecting with another person in a, in a fresh and engaging way that is kind of at the heart of this whole story. One thing that I appreciate with, you know, what you're saying there rings, rings true to me. It isn't just about their physical attraction to each other, you know, the desire to consummate their affair. And so what is it? They yeah. don't really know each other. That's what's, that's one thing that's so troubling to Lara as a character is that she can't quite comprehend what is going on with this upheaval in her life. Why does she want to now be with this person that she sees every Thursday and that's it? Mm-hmm. They never have really done anything. They've sat across from each other and had, you know, tea and they've gone on a walk and they've gone to the pictures and um, and all of that. And so the film does look at this not just as a passionate love affair, but as something to do with, Lara herself and her own desire. I mean, she likes to go to the pictures on Thursday. She's a romantic in a way, mm-hmm. right? She's not, mm-hmm. it, it isn't just about um, the, the other man. It's, it's, that's a big part of it, but she, she reads these books every, you know, she goes and gets her new books and you can tell she's living a life in the, in her mind. And this does kind of erupt into some possibilities yeah. that aren't just about, you know, physical pleasure. I mean, that's, that's, 
not what the film is about. There's that possibility and they both know it. And that's kind of something they both dread. Um, But it isn't just about that. It's about, it's about this pain and agony. Um, And, and I like one of her, one of her lines here. I I promise you that when we talked about the umbrellas of Shreveport, I did not have this movie in mind when I talked my story about that, you know, uh, girl that I dated in college and Mm -hmm. was recognized at the end of it. You know, someday I won't care so much about this. And thank goodness, Lara would disagree with me. (laughs) Here's what she says. She says, nothing lasts really, neither happiness nor despair. Not even life lasts very long. There will come a time in the future when I won't mind so much. I don't want that time to ever to come ever. I, I think it's so powerful to recognize that these emotions as, as it's, it's the, the, the picture just seems to show this relationship between agony and ecstasy mm-hmm. um, in, in a, in its essence in ways that I can't articulate or really explain, but you can just see it in, in what she's going through. And uh, again, just in, in such a profound way, uh, better than I really think I see it done in, in many other pictures. I, I love that she's, you know, I want to die or I want to live in this passion. You know, I mean, it, it, she is a woman brought to an, ex, in a, in an extreme circumstance here that a few weeks ago she would never have thought remotely possible. Yeah. Um, well, just beautiful. Well, well, and the fact is these feelings as strong as they are, um, and as as persuasive as they might prove to be, if you just sort of give in and surrender to them, there's there's something even more powerful and you might even say transcendent beyond those feelings. And I think that's an important mm-hmm. message. Again, you know, I you know I will I will advocate for you know faithful monogamy with the with the person that you've committed to and, and stick with it because. Yeah, I'm not going to get all moralistic or anything, but I, you know, there are times when it, acting on those emotions as compelling and as strong as they can be leads to disaster. And, and even though you can put your life back together and you can make amends and you can, you can, you know, make the best of the situation, um, we do have sometimes uh, a, a responsibility to ourselves and certainly to other people to 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 stay on on the beam, so to speak. And uh, I I appreciate that that message about you know if you want to pull that message out of this film, um, even though David Lean himself, I think well he was married what six times, <laughs> and so so he's you know I I wouldn't even He's still say with that... Kate Walsh at this point. But, uh... <laughs> True, but 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 and and you know so he's not he's not necessarily even telling this story based on some kind of moral principle or advocacy because you know he'd already gone through a couple marriages at this point and 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 that's really beside the point because it may not even be about marriage or or partnership it's it's just about the life you've lived and how quickly everything can get undone by uh you know giving yourself over to some kind of an impulse some kind of a sensation and so i think there is there is a rigorous um challenge if you will in 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 following these characters and getting caught up in their struggle and Laura's struggle in particular and recognizing like you said that we all have these unfathomable depths to us and we owe it to ourselves and to our loved ones to understand 
how <laughs> how those depths are mapped out, how they function, how they influence us, and then to you know exercise appropriate. Uh, self-control doesn't mean that if you're in a really bad toxic relationship that you have to stick with it and grind it out. I'm not, I'm not really trying to oh, give that kind of sure. a message. But, and neither is the film. That's why the, right, it's so because, great that the husband is not right, that way. Fred's a good yeah. guy and, and, and uh, he's not really done anything to bring about, you know, the, the disruption that might happen if, if uh, Laura were to just up and leave and, and run away. <laughs> it, it's, it's a fantasy. It's, it's a whim. And even, even, um, you know, the doctor's uh, statements, I will love you the rest of my life, undyingly always. It's like, well, you know, let's give it a couple of years. Won't. Yeah. After you're yeah. back in Johannesburg doing your thing, uh, this will be a moment. It'll be a season of life and, and you'll have learned from it yourself. So there's yeah. that. Laura's wiser than him because yeah. she recognizes it will dissipate. And she, and is she the doesn't one want that who, to happen. Right. Right. She doesn't want it, but she recognizes that it has to be that way. And and he comes around as well. So I think, I think there is something to be said about a little bit of um, self-discipline and all that. But let's also just look at how the story is told, because again, you could have the same kind of dilemmas and the same kind of emotional, you know, tension. But if the story isn't told as, as absolutely brilliantly as it is, the cinematography, the music, the, 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 the use of the train station, uh, Celia Johnson, we, we we probably can't praise her enough for all the subtle. I've got to stop doing it out loud. <laughs> well, but 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 you're right. You know the way she's expressing so much just by, you know, um, using her face, her gaze, mm-hmm. her eyebrows. You know, just uh, you know, there's there's volumes communicated there uh, by by purely nonverbal means and and that's pretty astounding uh but but also again taking this little stage bound vignette and and expanding it and and using the art of cinema to to elevate mm-hmm. the story way beyond what i even think noel coward had in mind when he wrote the stage play yeah it, this is david lean showing i am the master <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it's he he twists the camera at times, not in an overtly like, oh, I'm going to, you know, uh, make sure people recognize there's a director here. It He just seems to make the right choices throughout as far as where he's shooting from, how he's moving the camera, zooming in, you know, the pan shots, the train going past in the background. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the editing again from scene to scene, there, there's a part where <laughs> she's sitting on her chair and it starts to fade into her back in the present, but mm-hmm. the, what's on the screen in front of her is still the past. Yeah. And it takes a minute for that to fade and become her husband. Who's asking if he should turn the radio down. Those are really um, subtle, but brilliant effects. Even the lighting, yeah. you know, where she, you know, she'll be sort of sitting there surrounded by inky black, you know, shadows mm-hmm. around her. And then, and then something happens and she kind of perks up and the room lights up behind her. It's really, Again, very well modulated, and and you may not until you sort of stop and really look at what's going on. Uh, it's producing the effect before you even recognize the sleight of hand, if you will. That that's that's making you feel the way it does. Well, maybe maybe <laughs> we can we can give uh, people a rest a little bit. <laughs> yeah. we, Hopefully, they're caught up a little bit yeah. too. But I, I think it's worth saying, you know, again, I, I think it's clear. Uh, this is my favorite David Lean movie, but I love where his career goes from here. Oh, yeah. We've absolutely. got the Dickens um, 
adaptations coming up. We've got Hobson's Choice and Summertime. Mm-hmm. When are those coming out on Blu-ray? You know, oh, all of those, man. every yeah. one of those. Um, well, Summertime sometime. is getting into that kind of good morning Ozu territory where it's almost embarrassing that they're still selling that disc. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, make it, make it go out of print or something just because it's like, yeah, it's, it's a great film, but it, so desperately needs the upgrade and i don't know i yeah. I, I have to think it's been restored I, i'm sure that the foundation has done its work so i don't know well, what the hang-up is you know i'm just thinking of you know all the blu-ray upgrade wish lists yeah uh, on criterion cast i think i think more than one person has brought up summertime like well 10 years ago it's you know such a <laughs> as a needed incredibly release. splendid i mean it, it's venice it's Catherine hepburn it's 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 magnificent and and yeah. um yeah, I, I don't know. I maybe I haven't looked into it, but I don't know if it, if there is a good Blu-ray out there somewhere internationally or whatnot. But yeah, it it's it's really desperately needed at this point. Yeah, but we've got those. You know, each of those films fantastic, and then we yeah. get into his epics: Bridge in the oh, River yeah. Kwai, mm-hmm. um, Lawrence of Arabia, Doctor Zhivago. I I even really love um, Passage to India. Sure, you know that he did in the eighties. There yeah, are some of... there that I have not seen. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the midst of that, but. But this is this is to me the film that that really shows who we're dealing with, taking something and making it his own, mm-hmm. and and then giving it to us as something powerful and meaningful, and eminently rewatchable because there are depths in every you know in every scene. Um, yeah. We we just can't scratch the surface hardly you know and and. Here, here's where it all to me comes together. Uh, fortunately for me, in a, in a in a in a style and with a topic, I mean, geez, you, you know, I talked about my four favorite films. This is, in a way, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. You know, <laughs> this is this is very much that. Some of our conversation, even with Winter Light, you know, dealing with this personal tragedy of the the preacher just sitting, you know, up on the pew at the end, having to still talk while his you know, what's going on inside is so different. Mm-hmm. We've got Father Panchali with the, his sister, Apu's sister, you know, watching the train and just, you you yeah. see so much depth in her there. I guess that's what I hope people take away from my top four <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> letterbox. <laughs> well, I think there's a, there's a, a common theme of, of sensitivity of, of kind of quiet uh, reflection and insight and just recognizing that even in the ordinary mundane moments of life, uh, Mm-hmm. huge monumental massive things are going on you know there's tectonic shifts um as we as we ponder the choices and the relationships and uh and yeah the possibilities for what life can be going forward uh, so much humanity yeah, exactly in, yeah, in, in yeah. inside of those those eyes and those depths of of all of this so yeah. always a delight now i, I don't know we're, we're going on a little we had some oh, technical yeah. difficulties and i'm crossing over <laughs> uh over my 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 line here but i don't want to leave without just again kind of pushing this is an exceptional box set yeah um because it contains brief encounter first and foremost second it's david lean's first four films mm-hmm. this is a master and this is film school in a box for that third it's it's noel coward mm-hmm. um he for those of us in our circle he's maybe a curiosity or someone behind but i don't think it's wrong again i can't remember which supplement it was I, there's so many of them in this set who says in, in all intents and purposes you know noel coward is bigger than david lean when it oh, comes yeah. to british you know theater and his impact on it 
than even bigger than David Lean has been on film. And I believe that mm-hmm. it might be a, you know, kind of a, a side note for us, but this is a way to get to know him. Um, and, and the films are, are great, but boy, the supplements in this set, yeah. there are so many great um, supplements that are forthright and honest and open. There's documentaries throughout the years, both on lean and coward mm-hmm. um, on many of the characters you get Ronald Neem. I mean, how delightful to, to yeah. sit with him and, and have him He's 99 get, years old. Yeah. I think he, he passed away fairly soon after those interviews were conducted. But he's still sharp and full of yeah. great insight and, and humor. Really splendid. I, yeah, and, I think yeah. and and humanity again. Yeah, he yeah. cares about these people that he worked with. Yeah, uh, loved his, his that supplement. Mm-hmm. Well, Sorry, and, I interrupted and, you. Well, no, that's fine. <laughs> I, I think again, just just encountering these. Um, these important personalities here and Noel Coward. I mean, he also wrote the music to, um, mm-hmm. in which we serve. So, I mean, he really could do the whole thing, you know? And, um, if you're just interested in sort of the, you know, the evolving, uh, history of, of popular culture, um, you got to know Noel Coward, at least in the English speaking world. And I think, you know, you're right. He, he, he is a personality. I, I, you know, he did a lot of cameos. I, I watched a film, um, earlier this month called Paris when it sizzles, uh, Audrey Hepburn and William Holden. <laughs> I saw your TikTok. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, well, um, uh, Noel Coward is in, is in that film. He plays this huh. kind of big, you know, uh, award-winning director. He's the guy who's kind of commissioning William Holden to write a story. And William Holden is dealing with a massive writer's block and Audrey Hepburn comes in and it's, it's kind of meta and kind of weird and, and kind of, a pretty bizarre Audrey Hepburn movie, but I really liked it. Some people is really he by any it. chance? Is he by any chance the David Lean like well, stand-in? When you say big time director. Well, he's he's he, he's filmed uh, on this uh, very lavish um, kind of resort on the French Riviera, surrounded by these women in bikinis, and you know, kind of boasting uh, that this next film is going to be a massive blockbuster, whatever his character's name is. You know, when they put that across the screen, it's just going to rake in the money. So, yeah, I would say a David Lean is a very <laughs> uh, apt analogy there. I'm not sure he's imitating not deliberate maybe but but but, you know lean definitely has a a womanizer reputation and so that setup you know that he's depicted in in his little brief moments early in the film definitely could have been david lean (laughs) hanging out and uh you know some some seaside uh swanky uh resort club and and surrounded by beautiful women so yeah (laughs) i would imagine that (laughs) there's a little bit of uh lampooning going on there so yeah noel coward is a just a really fascinating figure and definitely one to uh to reckon with just to add it to your sort of cultural literacy if you're not really up and familiar because you're right theater doesn't have the same relative permanency that cinema does and so i can understand you know uh coward being lost to history a little bit especially if you're Mm -hmm. a younger viewer uh who really just hasn't gotten into this era of british filmmaking it's really it's really great to see these two talents coming together uh, at a pretty formative time in, in the history of british cinema in particular um there is a really good uh booklet that comes with this set um, it's one of those nice digipack every, you know, every film has its own digipack and, and then there's a pretty healthy booklet that has essays, both from, you know, kind of a, a an introductory essay on to here's David Lean and Noel Coward coming together. Um, and then we have, uh, essays on every single one of the, the, the 
films themselves, and I, I enjoy all of those. Yeah. It's Ian Christie who does kind of the introduction, Terrence Rafferty on In Which We Serve, Farron smith Nemi on um, This Happy Breed, Jeffrey O'Brien on Blythe Spirit, and then Kevin Brownlow on Brief Encounter. And mm-hmm. and it's a pretty nice, uh, again, I, I, I read it 10 years ago almost, geez. <laughs> and then again <laughs> yeah. for this set, and really just enjoyed the the story this whole thing tells you know this is again a reason i love these box sets and and love to be able to dig in and really just engage with a period or with a director in this case so many different things yeah i think even criterion you know showed respect by bringing some of their best contributing writers to the Mm -hmm. to the booklet so yeah it's it's classy all the way around Uh, i give this a very high recommendation all right. Well, I don't think we know yet what we're doing next. We haven't really talked about it, and that's okay. Yeah, but that's we'll be fine. back. Yeah, we definitely will probably give us a <laughs> month or two, you know, kind of fit it in between our other projects there. But it's uh-huh. always great to dig into these. And, you know, I feel like we've really extracted the value from this box set. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'll be checking out at least some of them again. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. So, I'm glad you got a chance to watch Brief Encounter on Blu-ray. Yeah, no, uh, no. I mean, again, yeah, I just, I cannot, I cannot <clears throat> uh, praise highly enough the restoration. I mean, the, the, the mm-hmm. early Technicolor, don't take that for granted. That is a tough job to get those films looking the way they do. And again, just that that high resolution uh, monochrome, the, the 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 trains roaring through the station, blowing those whistles, the Rachmaninoff soaring in the background. Mm. It's a very delightful sensory experience so uh yeah how did we get that to the end without mentioning rachmaninoff (laughs) second uh, piano concerto it's still it's amazing yeah in in this but all right well i will bring uh to close here's some rachmaninoff for listeners Uh, david always a pleasure look forward to the next one thanks again bye-bye Thank you for coming back to me.